I think we'd all agree we've been blessed with a wonderful afternoon in many ways, at least by way of weather and other considerations. But aren't we also honored and blessed to be able to come together to sing these songs that Brother Don has just led us in, to give thought to a collective prayer that we wonderfully enjoyed together, and to have at least a few moments of reflection upon some part of the Word of God. You may have already noted somewhat about the title as it was placed in the bulletin for this lesson this evening, having to do with what you see before you on the wall, the woke culture. We're going to look at Jesus and that particular attribute this evening. In so doing, this opening slide is, again, an introduction. Wouldn't we all agree? It takes really not much convincing in light of the opening statement on that slide. Sometimes the pressures of society can be great indeed, and sometimes the consequences of those pressures may well involve matters personal, it may well involve matters social, it may even involve matters medical. Now, you can even probably, without much difficulty, think of additional considerations. But I believe it goes without saying, and all of that's quite familiar. But tonight, as we reflect upon that title again, I do not hesitate to say, and I believe you'd agree, that at least in our country, there seems to be a rather fast-moving movement that's taking us in a societal way in a direction that's not terribly good the acceptance and the promotion and the approval of things which are not only problematic, but hurtful to the individual, harmful to the nation, and setting a precedent for many things that are so terribly troubling. This evening, as I attempted to think about some issues that might well engulf many of those, I chose that title that you noticed earlier, Jesus and the Woke Culture. I wonder what's meant by that. What does that name suggest? What are some ideas that seemingly are integral parts of it? This next slide will not only begin that journey, but it'll do so with a definition. If you're like me, you may well have encountered a challenge when you first heard usage of this word, at least in many contexts. In fact, if, again, you're like me, the only way you may ever have learned much about the word woke was the past tense of the word wake when somebody wakes up from sleep. But the thing is, that's not the means and the context and the definition by which it seemingly is so often used in our modern society. What's meant by then, that word? What does it connote? And what does it represent? Well, this slide first begins with this definition. I consulted a dictionary. In an online dictionary, it simply said that the word woke, W-O-K-E, can be used as an adjective, and as you can see on the slide, it originally had to do with an alertness to injustice and a discriminational sense in any way in society. It would seem the original thrust had to do with racism. That is to say, an alertness to a circumstance in which someone was being prejudiced due to their race. That someone was the recipient of discrimination because of the color of his or her skin. I think we'd all agree that certainly that particular beginning to this may be one thing. What it has come to be is quite different. The next point on that slide is this one. It has thus come to be the case that this word woke is now used to describe a circumstance of a person who has a heightened awareness of injustice in any sense in another person's life. 
And that injustice may be connected to cultural matters, to perception of one's own experience, whatever may be the perceived source of it. The word woke has come to describe it. Some examples, in fact, next, now are engulfed and embraced to be the following. So woke is now used to defend that set of circumstances of an individual who, again, wishes to live in a same-sex arrangement. They would say, it's my right to do this, and I'm being discriminated against by anyone who would offer any opposition to it. And therefore, that's a woke kind of topic. But of course, along that same consideration, look at the next one. There are others who would wish, in fact, to endorse and support and pursue abortion rights. It's my right to do this. And others, you just do not have any right to quash or to oppose or to resist. That is my right. And therefore, that too has become a woke phenomenon or at least a woke topic. In the next place, we could add a few others as well. The transgender movement and gender fluidity. Haven't we all come to appreciate that a part again... I feel as though my gender may well be different than my biological one. And whose right is it to oppose this? Isn't it my right to pursue this in whatever way is comfortable to me? And in so doing, the woke movement has openly embraced gender fluidity as well in almost every context in which it can so easily appear. Beyond that listing, I've quickly added a few more. We know that the LBGTQ movement embraces sexual freedom in nearly every manner in which it can be considered. Not only lesbian and gay, but as we've already mentioned, transgender and queer, and of course a whole host of others that also are rather powerfully included. There are those in this woke idea that be quick to say, but this is how I feel, this is the way in which I am. And surely no one has any right to disagree or to oppose or to resist or in any way to offer anything that would be perceived as uncomfortable viewpoint toward it. And so woke has also come to be embraced by that set of ideas as well. Near the bottom of that opening slide, you and I tonight are not particularly interested in societal considerations, quite frankly, We'd like to know, was Jesus woke? Is the gospel message a woke message? Is the teaching of the Word of God consistent with the woke point of view? Tonight that'll be our idea, and that's our interest, and that's what we're going to consider at least over the next few minutes. This next slide will be one that not only begins that discussion, but offers an initial answer. I suppose there's already no real means of confusion. The Bible message isn't consistent with this. And Jesus was not consistent in His lifestyle with it either. For that reason, could I go ahead and say, it is not the case that the Bible, the Word of God, the preciousness of which we sang a moment ago, give me the Bible. The Bible's teaching rather strongly opposes the philosophy of wokeness, used this way at least. It strongly encourages a whole different viewpoint. Let's look at a handful of topics in the Bible, all of which will be related to this, and all of which will develop at least some aspect of wokeness over against the teaching of the Word of God. And the first one is exclusivity. 
the woke philosophy, quite frankly, is one that embraces any and everything, no matter how lewd or licentious or in other philosophies it may be. The only thing that is not tolerated is intolerance. Let a Christian stand up and offer some thought based on the Word of God opposed to it, and now suddenly there is no toleration of that. There is no toleration of anything along that line. But anything else, as it purports to be one's own experience, connected to one's own preference, that has to be defended. And that has to be openly pursued. I might point out that the idea of racism, as I noted earlier, was the idea that seemingly began what developed into the woke way of looking at things. And you and I would be quick to say that the color of a person's skin does not dictate that person standing before God. A colored person can be just as faithful a Christian as any white man ever could. What determines that in the sight of God is that person's obedience to the law of God and that person's conviction with respect to faithfulness. The color of the skin does not determine standing before God. A person could be white, black, red, brown, yellow. That makes no difference. In Acts 17, verses 25 and 26, aren't we told there that God made of one blood every nation upon earth? I think it's a fascinating thing that you and I can go donate blood and it could be given to a black person. And he or she will be just fine. That same black person could donate blood to you and me. And as long as the type is right, it'll be just fine. You see, blood is a rather amazing thing. And in that sense, often the human family has cast much more of a spotlight on the color of the skin than on the other features connected to what God looks upon as most significant. But racism leads me to say this. You and I realize discrimination on the basis of race is not something the Bible would approve or endorse. But yet you and I come to note this. That idea led to this way of thinking. Well, isn't it true that black people, colored people, were such that they did finally arrive at a position in this land where they enjoyed more rights than they once had had? And that's true. But when we talk about racism in that way, or we talk about, let's say, these sexual matters, God has no problem with the color of a man's skin. He does have a problem with sexuality practiced differently than what the Bible approves. And in that sense, the two are not equal. God does frown upon lesbianism, homosexuality, for example. He doesn't frown on the color of a man's skin. You see, there's a gigantic distinction between the way in which the Word of God would allow them. They're not in the same category. In fact, you may have heard someone say on occasion, well, if black people got their rights at one time back in the 60s, shouldn't transgender or lesbian people get their rights? The two are not the same. They are not equal. God is opposed to one. He isn't opposed to the other one. And in that sense... They are not on equal footing. You may notice then at the top of this slide, this whole idea of exclusivity. The woke phenomenon is one that ultimately embraces the inclusiveness of all. But the Bible does not. The Word of God does not. 
there's an exclusive viewpoint connected to the way in which Jesus Himself taught and the gospel which He set forth. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other. In Ephesians 4, 4, there's one body. And one verse later, there's one faith. There is only one. It doesn't matter what someone else may prefer. It doesn't matter what someone else may, in fact, desire to be true. It doesn't change the fact. And yet, the woke phenomenon lifts high the banner of acceptance of nearly any and everything, so long as the person perceives it an infringement of their rights. The Bible knows nothing of that concept. Absolutely nothing. It's no wonder, as you close that opening topic, this idea of an exclusive thing presented in the Bible directly leads us to what I've entitled as the next one. Not worldly. Did you notice that all of the features of this woke phenomenon are connected to experiences related to the fleshly aspect of the human being? And many of them to direct sexual expression one way or the other. And yet, when you and I come to appreciate the Bible's teaching throughout it, we learn that we must not love the world. We are directly given that commandment in 1 John 2.15, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And we're quickly told that, of course, the world and that which lives according to that will vanish away, but those that, of course, are in the godly viewpoint and following that way of the Lord, they, of course, will abide. It might be fair to notice in that connection that friendship with the world is directly said to be enmity with God. And that word enmity brings about an aggressive opposition, a thought, quite frankly, of extreme oppositeness with respect to God. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Would you again embed in your thinking with me the thought that the woke topics, the woke set of ideas, are based upon personal experiences of preference, perceived as infringement upon personal rights. But yet, we've just learned those matters are connected to worldly expression. And yet, the Word of God teaches just the opposite in those things. Would you recall with me the command given to one and all in that text again of 1 John 2? There was a circumstance, and it's that community to which John the Apostle wrote. Don't be lovers of the world. You and I understand that connection that Jesus Himself said, No man can serve two masters, for either you will hate the one and love the other, or else you will cling to the one and you'll despise the other, but you cannot serve God in mammon. When Jesus made that statement in Matthew 6, 24, He said before those of that day, you may note the context before and after it, but there were those who were motivated by the pursuits of this world, the flesh, be it the matters of food, be it the matters connected to experiences. And Jesus said you cannot serve two masters at the same time. One will have the higher elevation. One will have the greater treasure in the heart. One will have key priority. Though it might be claimed you serve both, in the slightest moment of contradiction between the two, you have to make a selection and you have to make a choice. 
No wonder in that light. We've seen two phenomena, two ideas. What about a third one? One of the earlier ideas we mentioned in passing was this one. The concept of justice. The perceived infringement of personal rights and a sense of injustice connected to that idea. And that has exploded into the woke culture in which we live. But what about this idea of misplaced justice? What about this idea of misplaced sense in light of what is just and right? May I ask, in the woke culture, who determines what's just and what's not? In the woke culture, who determines what would be a circumstance of injustice? The answer is clear. It's whatever a person's own preference is. If my rights have been infringed upon, I have been injusticed. I have been one who has experienced this. And thus, let's develop that point this way. If each person is allowed to determine what his or her own just essence is, I believe that paints us in a dramatic picture. And it paints us into a rather dramatic light. For that means every person has his or her own right to determine his or her own sense of what's just and right for that person. And apparently no one else has any right or liberty or luxury to make any statement for or against that would cause discomfort or that would cause a sense of infringement or a sense of disenfranchisement. But that idea takes you to about the middle of that slide. Is it the teaching of the Bible quite different than that? Who determines what is just and who determines what is right? That isn't left to man. It has never been left to man. That has been determined by God. It is He who determines what falls in the category of rightness, in the category of righteousness, in the category of what's appropriate and that which is to be pursued. God determines that, not man. And surely not the personal preferences of men. A few verses that I would invite you to consider. By what means is a person to live? It would seem that's an appropriate idea related to this matter before us. Aren't we told once in the Old Testament and then several times in the New that the person who is just will live by faith? And there we have it. The just shall live by faith. That text first occurs in Habakkuk 2 verse 4 in the heart of the Old Testament prophets, but then it's quoted three times in the New Testament. In three distinct and separate passages, we each for all time are reminded that that individual who is just shall live by, walk by, and pursue a life of faith. Faith, of course, as taught by and presented by the marvelous God of heaven. As you look at some of the verses, I've invited you to consider. In Galatians 3 verse 24, in the heart of the Galatian letter, Paul wrote to the Galatian brethren and encouraged of them that, again, the just shall live by faith. In many ways, that discussion began as early as verse 8 of that chapter and is developed in some amazing detail in many of the intervening verses. In Hebrews 10 verse 38, the just shall live by faith. When you give thought then to this is what just people do, 
doesn't it sound quite different from the woke philosophy who determined just as in so many different ways connected to personal experience? One last thing on that slide would be this pair of ideas, one of which is this. Without a doubt, the Bible upholds the philosophies of justness and goodness and love and mercy. And there's many senses in which the woke philosophy highlights those ideas, but they do not connect them to anything related to the law of God. Again, it's connected to perceived injustice. It isn't right for a person's rights to be infringed upon. And yet, isn't it amazing that one of the last thoughts is this one. You and I would be quick to uphold the Bible's teaching of love for God and love for the human family. Aren't we taught that the second of the commandments is to love one's neighbor as oneself? Spoken so strongly in Luke chapter 2, I'm sorry, Matthew, Mark chapter 12, verse 31. I suppose in light of some of those ideas, we've seen three ideas at least that seemingly are so different from what the woke philosophy is. What about another one? This woke philosophy, this woke perspective, and its connection to morality. I think we've already noted by way of certain listings that moral purity is not a philosophy with any place in the typical woke culture. Moral purity is not an issue of concern. Again, the concern is what do I prefer to do regardless who it's with or what it involves, but it's my right. At the top of that slide, I've invited you to consider the following. There's a text that I'd like to read. It's in the sixth chapter of 1 Corinthians. If you would be turning to that, and as I make preparation to read it, I'd like to share with you at least a few passing thoughts about the culture of the Corinthian church. The ancient city of Corinth, if there was ever a city that would have been encouraged in wokeness, it would have been them. You and I know from our studies in 1 Corinthians, and we also know from certain geographical, extra-biblical sources about certain features of the city of Corinth, the nature of what went on there, what kind of ways that were often occurrent in the lives of people, and it was a lifestyle that was openly embracing of so many things from a cultural standpoint. Among the cities of the ancient Roman Empire, it was positioned in such a way that there were travelers from near and far, and whatever they brought to the city, it was openly welcomed, no matter what it was. And yet in the midst of that city was the nucleus of a congregation of the Lord's people, the church at Corinth. The church of Christ in the city of Corinth. Though there were so many forces against them, coming from culture, coming from societal pressures, and in fact, all 16 chapters of 1 Corinthians encourage us to ponder some of that which they faced, and in the midst of it, we read verses like this. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, 
nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. As Paul made a listing, a description of things like this, he said, don't you know? And that, of course, is a rhetorical observation, don't you know? Fornicators, these who engage in sexual impropriety, the ancient form, the word that you and I appreciate, pornea, that's translated as this word fornication, very broad term, having to do with so many particular things that you and I would readily recognize, they were wrong then, and nothing has changed. You'll notice he quickly then mentions idolaters, those who again would give their religious attention to some thing or want other than the God of heaven. That was wrong. In the third place, adulterers, those who aren't faithful in their marriages. They are not faithful to the spouse whom they've married. That's not right. In the fourth place, effeminate, those who are soft in a way that's inappropriate. A man that won't act like a man. In the next place, abusers of themselves with mankind. Homosexuality. It wasn't right then. Nothing has changed. These who are, you may notice, in the first place and now the second. The first one seems to have a rather direct appreciation to those who occupy a more passive role in some gay relationship. The second one is the one who is the more aggressive one in that relationship. But Paul said neither one is right. Both of them are improper and both of them are in the category of being unrighteous. There was no acceptance of wokeness in ancient Corinth. In the next place, you'll notice several others quickly mentioned. Thievery, stealing if you please, covetousness, drunkenness, revilers, extortioners, all of those in addition, detailed and mentioned as being unacceptable. But isn't it amazing that the first section of that now leads us to cast a spotlight on verse 11? And such were some of you. Paul, without any shame, could say, you were people like this, as he spoke to that church in Corinth. That would lead us to suppose there had been some adulterers at some point previous in their life, and they were a part of that church now. There had been some fornicators, there had been some homosexuals, but they'd repented. They were not that way any longer. And we know that because of what now follows. Let's finish verse 11. And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Those who had been that way no longer were. May we never allow someone to tell us they are born that way. They may need some instruction, may need some counseling and help, but you're not born that way. You choose this. Any of these woke matters when it comes to sexual issues and experiences, it's a choice. Isn't it interesting in that light that these words in 1 Corinthians 6 bring us to the fifth and final observation of that section? It's the lesson text that Brother Vestal read earlier. What about the grace of our Lord? 
In Titus 2, verses 11 and 12, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. And so the gospel of Christ teaches us we have to deny ungodliness. We have to to deny these worldly lusts and live in a way separate and apart from them and dedicated and devoted to these which are not wokeness, but which are of faith. The just indeed shall live by faith. The fifth and final point of our lesson tonight. The whole idea of this woke philosophy seems to have much to say about the Bible's teaching concerning marriage. My comments will be relatively brief, but isn't it a sweet thing to recollect that according to the Bible... Marriage is so honorable. It's, exa- it's exactly described that way in Hebrews 13, 4. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. That word whoremongers, that's this word pornea that involves this fornication idea. And so isn't it true that sexual freedom connected to that is not right? It is perceived as something God will judge. God's favor is not upon it. Isn't it interesting in that connection that that does help us be refreshed as we contemplate the sweetness of marriage as the Bible describes it, the blessing which it is to all who are in that family. The Bible expresses God's condemnation of these other things, but how sweetly He looks upon marriage. It is in that light I would call your attention to verses such as these. In John chapter 2, the very first of the Lord's miracles was performed at the marriage feast in Cana of Galilee. The Lord was there. He was there in attendance. He was there as a part of that event. Isn't that a sweet thing to recollect? That the Lord's first miracle occurred at a location and in a circumstance such as that one? Not only that, in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 5, we have expressed statement that the apostles had every right to be married to a sister. That is to say, to one who was of your faith, to one who could assist and help you. You and I know that as marriage is described in ways like that, it could well be that the highest of those descriptions comes in the closing paragraph of Ephesians 5. There Paul lifted the consideration of marriage as high as this. He compared the Lord's relationship to His church to a husband's relationship to his wife. Now that's sweet and that's powerful and that's remarkable. And so isn't it true that if marriage is described and highlighted in ways like that, it calls upon us to be reminded of the greatness of purity You and I understand that stated like this in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2. To avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife. Anything else, any other sexual expression, will thus fall in a category of fornication. Isn't that a reminder that this woke philosophy that encourages one and all to pursue what your desire, your pleasure, your particular consideration might well desire to be? Jesus wasn't woke, and the gospel isn't either. 
but we're called to purity, moral purity, faithful purity, purity in light of developing sexual expression only in the way that God approves it, no others. As we close our lesson tonight, this closing slide is merely a conclusion one, which we highlight somewhat briefly some of the observation we've already made. The woke culture in which we now find ourselves is a culture that I think would be fair to be described with certain adjectives such as these. On occasion, there are some in that philosophy who can be rather aggressive, rather vehement, somewhat strong, and quite often extraordinarily intolerant of any viewpoint, such as a biblical one, that would offer opposition to freedom in any of those ways of expression. But to say that is not to say anything new. But what it is to say is Jesus isn't woke. He wasn't when He lived. Paul and Peter and the other New Testament writers, they were not either. But as they came into the various cities, they preached a message of faithful purity and devotion to God that called one and all to recognize certain things as not only inappropriate, but as sinful. And they were called to repentance and called to a new lifestyle and a new viewpoint. About the middle of that slide then, I've tried to say it like this. The Lord's way, which is the right way, is a way that opens up blessing in this life and blessing hereafter. The woke philosophy and the woke culture, though it seems to be gaining steam, at least the word is being used far more often than it once was in this connection, it sure does remind us that several ideas we've considered tonight are directly opposite the woke one. Things such as Jesus' way is exclusive. The woke one's just the opposite. We learn, too, that the Lord's way lifts high the banner of marriage with that consideration, but yet the woke philosophy offers expression of sexual things in many, many other ways. As we close this lesson tonight, I, I know that the church, from its very inception, has stood in the midst of a culture that's opposed many of the teachings of the church and the teachings of the Bible and that which God endorses with such highness and purity that likely won't change until the end of time. It's just that we seemingly are living in a time when in America at least, the wonderful way in which the blessings of God have brought such a sweet consideration of many expressions and ease of life, those have led into matters where that's extended into these other moral matters. We must be careful. We must be mindful and not allow our thinking to be adopted into some of the ways that the woke culture would encourage upon us. The church is not primarily a social organization. I know that there are those who say that it is. In Nashville, as I travel to work, there's a marquee outside one particular religious organization's building, and it proudly proclaims the following. Inclusive and affirming. That's what they are. That's what they uphold. And I feel sure if you look at some other messages which I've seen on that slide, you would have no trouble expecting what kind of preaching you're going to hear. The woke culture is front and center of what's encouraged and endorsed and openly presented. But the Bible doesn't teach it. 
you and I are encouraged to feel much differently about those philosophies. Tonight, it could be that you and I, as we examine ourselves, we would easily recognize it may be the woke phenomenon has never been an issue that troubles us. But maybe as we examine our lives, there are other things that we have found problematic. We haven't denied ourselves in the way that we should, and we have pursued self above God. And in so doing, we brought shame upon what the name Christian stands for. Others who know us have looked upon our life and have been puzzled by what they see us do as opposed to what they hear us say. That's not good. In fact, that's a very hurtful thing to the cause of the Master. If that's the situation that describes you tonight, don't remain in that case. Won't you, in fact, beseech the Lord's forgiveness? Make confession of those things. Make repentance of them. And as you do that, we'll be honored to pray on your behalf. God will forgive, and the Lord with excitement will do the same. If, the, if your circumstance in life would encourage you tonight to wish to come down this aisle, whether it be as an alien sinner or as a wayward child of God, if it is that former category, you need to believe in Jesus and repent of your sins, confess His name and be baptized, and we'd be delighted, in fact, we'd be honored to encourage you tonight in the way of that obedience to the cause of the Christ. Brother Don has chosen a song of encouragement. If we could be of some assistance and help at this moment, we'd love to do that. Let us know how we can while together we stand and while we sing.